Hey guys, welcome to this month's episode of the Channel 42. How are you all doing? Fantastic. Pretty good here. Excellent. So all happened in the news. You've seen the, um, all the excitement about IoT and IoT security. I love what you said, Troy. The, the S in IoT stands for security, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny quote. I've heard that years and years ago. There's uh, coffee mugs you can order now that have uh, you know the S and uh, IoT stands for security. But it's it's been a saying for quite a while. It's more of the security side of, of uh, networking. Funny story for you. I um I was working for a company. I I can't mention names. A large company. I was doing some work for them, teaching them about some aspect of security. And one of the guys who was there, we, we were working late one evening trying to fix a problem he had, and we just got talking. And he told me the story of how he'd worked for many, many car manufacturers. And there was a common theme in all the car manufacturers. What happened is, is they wanted to build in some kind of remote functionality. So when the car drives into the shop, they can get information from the car. Okay. And Someone said, let's use Bluetooth. Okay, so we need to add a Bluetooth functionality to every vehicle. How much will that cost? And somebody pointed out, well, hold on a second. Do we need to add Bluetooth functionality? Because we just added Bluetooth functionality into the audio system of the cars so that people can play music from their phones. And somebody somewhere with the decision that, hey, let's piggyback on that connection. And, you know, we, we, we'll put an access control list or something in the middle. So effectively, lots and lots of car manufacturers at some point had a common Bluetooth connection for audio and getting information from the car. Well, that's not scary, right? You're getting information. Of course, until somebody realized they could also adjust information. And let's just say that it took a little while before somebody pointed out that that could be abused <laughs> and hackers demonstrated, I won't mention names, at DEFCON a couple of years back where they could the apply, apply the brakes on a vehicle at 70 miles an hour via Bluetooth. I, I may have exaggerated that story a little bit and got a little bit more exciting, but the point was, hey, let's use this Bluetooth connection. What could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. It took a while before they realized that lots of things could possibly go wrong. And it wasn't like one car manufacturer. Uh, this guy was telling me that it, it was a common thing amongst car manufacturers. And it was fine. The, the point here is it was fine when you only read information. Because if hackers read information about your car, does it matter? Maybe. It's when a feedback loop was added that it became a potential problem. Now, they took all the precautions, of course. And they added a firewall and access control lists and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it's the same as you, when you watch on the, you know, the television show, the 24 is the classic show, right? Oh, no, the hackers have hacked into our nuclear reactor. What can we do? Fixed it. If you disconnect it from the internet, then there can't be a problem. Now, there's hundreds of stories there why they connect things to the internet because it's easy. But one thing I always say in a lot of my hacking classes is convenience is a hacker's best friend. You guys got any uh, stories or comments you want to add? Uh, to comment on, on connecting to the internet, that's the reason why, why at least the military for, from where I'm at decided not to go onto the internet because it's dangerous out there. 
and yeah. it is it is in fact uh, and it's it's so easy to to slip up so you actually provide access to the the nice guy that would remote control your system so so it is uh, dangerous and you have to give it a, a thought before you enter to that realm in reality mm. Because if it's 99.9% guaranteed to be secure, if it's a nuclear reactor, that's not good enough. If it's no. a military, it's not good enough. People make mistakes, right? And we, and we have to realize uh, hackers, wonder if that's the proper term, but let's use that. Yeah. Um, they, they are dedicated people. Um, lots of them are smart guys, girls. Um, and uh, plenty of them might have uh, a lot of time on their hands. No, especially we don't have. Can, we can, can I make can I make one comment? I'm glad you said is hackers the right name. And I, I always don't like to use the word hackers because in the hacking community, hackers are just people who look into things. They use the word crackers. But the media we have today, Tor, as you well know, use the word hackers. I've started using the word threat actors, which is what S plus CH and lots of other people start using now. Threat actors. And I use that as the term of the nasty people. You've got advanced persistent threats, state-owned threat actors and things. What, what do you feel about the word threat actors? I like it better than hackers. I've, I've used, for, for myself, I've used, uh... When I'm, when I'm fiddling with code, uh, making some improvements, I actually called it a hack. Yeah. Because I, I changed the original code. Uh, I might also accidentally not made it better, but I did a hack anyways. Um, so so that's, that's how I see uh, the term hacker uh, uh, originally. But I agree with you because the surrounding world is using the term hacker as the the bad guy we still need to to adapt to that um we could we can't stop uh the language from evolving or do you see devolving yeah yeah i think we say devolving yeah, yeah. yeah. de-evolve right de-evolve yeah yeah sure. troy what are your thoughts so the the name's a little interesting. Uh, you have movies uh, that uh, are years years old now, but uh, hackers the, the movie. Uh, so they call them uh, you know the threat actors. Uh, I guess it's just a changing name. Um, but I guess you could have called them uh, tinkerers. Uh, I, I kind of see yeah. that you know yeah. the, the the definition that you that it seems to be that you're looking for for hackers could be applied with uh, tinkerers, but sort of yeah. you know uh, people working in their garage, kind of quasi inventors, kind of doing that thing. Um, but it's interesting, the, the description you gave me about the, the Bluetooth uh, tax on the cars reminds me of that car whisper program that developed years and years ago where you could drive up beside people and inject audio into their, uh, through the Bluetooth, um, play sounds through their speaker systems. Yeah. So that was a bit interesting. And then Tor, uh, something that uh, you mentioned just about, um, you know, uh, guys or gals having more time. Uh, to, to kind of investigate, you know, enumerate uh, different networks, discover what's out there and kind of plan their, their entry uh, points into those networks. Um, but it's, there's also uh, larger organizations that have uh, deeper, pocket, deeper pockets uh, that are well-funded, have uh, almost virtually unlimited uh, resources. So when we start looking at things like uh, nation states, uh, these are yeah. the, uh, you know, very organized um, 
institutions uh, that have uh, you know the, the the means and justification to go after these these critical sites like nuclear power plants, chemical plants, uh, energy plants, um, you know, from their their, their competing uh, countries. Yeah, a, you're right. You're quite right there. There's a fantastic video out there where um, they use the word hackers again. Hackers, actually, it's it's government employees who proof of concept taking down a power generator. And uh, if I can find it, I'll post it. But um, just Google hackers attack power generator. Um, this it's a it's a it's a power generator that's the size of of like an office. It's it's huge, and you can see this thing, and it starts to smoke, and then it physically starts bouncing. You you can mm. see this like you know I don't know uh, tons and tons of metal physically bouncing because what they've done is they've They've shown how vulnerable it is by taking readings and making slight adjustments. They've, they've adjust the spin of the, the fans, the rotors, the motors, and so on and so forth. And they've caused an imbalance that they've managed to make it worse and worse. And eventually the thing just completely destroys itself. And they were proof of concept in potentially to show how hackers threat actors Let, let's just let's just use the term for now <laughs> why fight it right because it's on the news constantly we know yeah. better but yeah i think yeah. you're right and they showed how hackers can can damage things if given even a little bit of access because one thing i want to point out to people is you might be sitting there thinking dude i don't make mistakes in my code absolutely agree with you you can double check it. You can get your buddy to double check it. You can get your security team to double check it. But how do you know that the C++ compiler you used doesn't have a bug in it that can become manifest without you knowing? And that's the problem with a lot of this coding. Remember, you know, we run code on my laptop. It's an Intel i7. It's got firmware built in by Apple. It's got firmware built in by Intel in the chip, in the chip itself. Um, I'm running Mac OS, which was written by Apple, using some kind of compiler. There's an awful lot of people that got involved in the code that's running on my computer, not just the person who actually wrote the Mac OS. Does that make sense? To, do you see where I'm going with this? Perfectly. Makes sense. We're building on top of uh, code that was built many years back. Um, and we don't we don't have the, the full insight into what's behind that, and we can't because the complexity of coding today uh, would make it impossible for us uh, to to create what we see in in our world today. Was mm -hmm. wasn't there a story about the entire TCP/IP stack on I think everything? is built on some Unix TCP IP stack of about 20 years ago. Am I getting the facts wrong here? And that had an inherent vulnerability in it that's effectively in everything today. Have you heard about that mm -hmm. one? No, not really. I mean, let me do a quick Google. We, we could take Wikipedia. That's a, that's a true source. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> but there's also uh, being confident in your code and thinking that it has no errors. Um, and your code may run successfully, but uh, the other thing that uh, to think about is what happens if uh, someone adds data that you weren't expecting? 
So it, it's checking your code to handle all the, the errors or the, the malformed inputs or unexpected input that could go into your program. Uh, so one, one example that comes to, to mind is um, in the, the, the gaming industry, people are playing online games. Um, if you're able to inject data that uh, talks back to the, you know, your, your servers uh, up, up in the, the cloud and return information, what your character has done or experience they've earned, gold they've earned, you know, weapons they've uh, captured. Uh, so one of the things that some of the, you know, the, the hackers have done is if they uh, take away values, if they take away a minus one from their inputs, if they roll back um, below zero, if they take a minus one from a value of zero, uh, one of the error conditions that results is when you take away that minus one, um, it gives you maximum of whatever item you were subtracting. So when you go below zero, it just gives you the, the maximum of that, what you could possibly contain. And so that, you know, the, their, their code, they may have been confident that everything was correct, but they didn't validate the input. Why would, ever, why would someone ever send us a negative one of this, this item when they had yeah. zero to begin with? But that, yeah. that condition creates this weird, uh, weird error. And that's, that's one of the things to, to test with is that, um, you know, the, the saying that, you know, the, the world can always make a greater, uh, greater idiot, right? To be able to come up with, uh, you know, a, a, a weird uh, case of numbers or input data that you can enter that can create un unexpected results. I remember a yeah, the, the intent or the imagination, the intent with the programming, with the coding was to build something, as you said, with the, with the, with the game uh, example. But we see it uh, on a daily basis. Uh, we, we all see these uh, bug notifications. Um, and that's actually not developers uh, uh, introducing bugs by intent, by, but it happens because someone tried something not expected. Uh, we didn't have the right imagination. We didn't test it thoroughly. And to be honest, we can't really test it. 100% anyways. So I guess that we'll still be seeing these uh, these bugs and these vulnerabilities in our systems. We have just have to be be aware that they exist and try to to uh, kind of protect against the situation we have there also. Mm -hmm. So I had a story a while back, and I think I think it was attributed to a Microsoft um, security expert or tester, and he was at a conference talking about you know doing what you guys says, thoroughly check the range of inputs you can have. For example, make sure no one sends you a minus one. And somebody in the audience said to him, why would anybody ever send you a minus one? And his response was, there is some teenager in Northern Europe who will try and send a minus one just to see what happens. Yeah. Why? Because I can. Yes, because I can. And Tor, yeah. you're from... Um, I, I, would you count as Northern Europe or Middle Europe? Northern Europe. And uh, I have been a teenager, yes. And once you get up to Scandinavia... I'm not sending it anymore. <laughs> once you get up to Scandinavia, right, when October, November comes and the sun goes down, in some places, it doesn't come back up for a month or two. No. You've got nothing else to do. Hey, let's throw random numbers at this. Oh, look what happened. Yeah, absolutely. You get a bug bug. While you mention it, um, this time, I think that we have many people confined in their home yeah. right now. So yeah. we might actually see something there also. I'm just speculating. Oh, I did something the other day. It was something stupid. I, I miskeyed something and a well-known program did something. And I was like, yeah. oh, it wasn't oh, like amazing. amazing. It was like <laughs> just something that it wasn't supposed to do. And obviously no. a patch came out a week later and it didn't happen anymore. 
Well, mm-hmm. I just came across it accidentally because I typed two keys in the wrong way and something on the screen went, and I went, oh, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, it was too late. I, it's not like I got $1,000 for reporting a bug or something. They already knew about it, and a week later, it, it didn't happen anymore. But you'll be amazed how lucky some people can be sometime and accidentally come across an event. And that brings us to IoT, right? We're talking about generic problems. <laughs> I just flew in my room and landed right on my camera. Wow. Um, what about IoT then, guys? Do you think it's even, it's even worse in IoT, possibly because people want to make things as cheap as possible to make them to mass produce? You know, if you're going to throw, if a farmer's going to throw something on his field, it's going to measure water in the soil, he doesn't want to spend $10 per item, right? It, it needs to be disposable and easily thrown away. What are your thoughts on that? Not only uh, uh, cost-effective to, to mass produce, but also easy to configure and, and set up. Correct. So yeah. the more barriers you put in front of getting it set up and easy to use to, to turn into production, or if you have to troubleshoot something, um, th- those are barriers that you want to avoid to make your product successful and uh, gain access to the market. I was reading somewhere the other day that um, you can change the address on some entities by changing jumper settings. Now, to me, I've been using jumper settings for like 30 years, right? What you've got to remember is Farmer Giles or, or old McDonald, the famous farmer, he's not necessarily going to change the jumper setting on the 1,000 devices he's sprinkling on his field. He's just going to buy them from IoT RS and sprinkle them on his field. But as, yeah, as default... And expecting them just to work Correct. because that's exactly. what he paid for. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. it makes perfect sense when you're buying things like that. It should just work out of the box. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it has to be the industry, us, that has to solve the issues. As you mentioned, Troy, uh, we, we, we need to have them being easy to use, ready, readily available, um, uh, not having to configure them for authentication, encryption, and all the fun stuff we do on a daily basis um so yes uh, i definitely see iot as a for as a security guy as a bigger threat today or let's say it it's a it's a nice new challenge yeah i, I just want to tell a story to, um, to try and see if i can make this relative the there was a bug found in the intel chip where if the right circumstances occurred you could access cache data and someone said the chances of that cache data actually being valuable are very very low and i just want to go back to a story that that i heard from an intel guy a long time ago that there was a chip where the maths coprocessor had a problem in it and it came out that they discovered the problem. And the Intel guy was telling me that, that, that the company said, look, right, if you invest, I'm going to make up numbers now. These just made up numbers to exaggerate the situation. He said, if you invested a million dollars in a bank and used our chip for 10 years at 10% interest, you would lose less than a penny. And then somebody else said, yes, but if NASA used that chip or the maths coprocessor to calculate the position of sending a spacecraft to Mars, they would miss by 10,000 miles. And 
the reality is it might seem like a little insignificant mm -hmm. situation, but there are applications where if there's any possibility that data can be extracted from the cache, it just will not be allowed to be used in a military environment, all right? Yeah, that's so, true. So a lot of people yeah. say, why are we panicking over such insignificant little problems? Well, they're only insignificant until they become significant. Yeah, what do you think? So true. No, I totally agree. Uh, and uh, and dealing with, uh, with, you said, Troy, nation, security, uh, government, military, um, close enough is not good enough. Yeah, we have we have to be, we have to seek seek for the the best security we can get whatsoever. Perfect security. And that's yeah, yeah, the, that. yeah, yeah. And 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 I'm saying it like this because we we do know that promising hundred percent security is kind of a, an illusion. But we have to strive towards it, That's because if we don't do that, we'll just say, okay, I know it's not good enough, but who would go in and hack my network and uses, use my computers for a botnet? That wouldn't happen, right? But we know it happens, and that will be the same as uh, the concerns we need to have in, in, a, in a government military installation. Well, there was a well-known company that got hacked because the hackers couldn't get into their company, but they got into the air conditioning company that serviced mm -hmm. them. And somebody, I say this multiple times, inconvenience is a hacker's best friend. It was convenient to make the server that controlled the HVAC systems have an administration level privilege to another server and as a result, a well-known company lost several hundred thousand credit cards over that because of an admin level given to a server that was running and controlling the air conditioning units in the company. And I don't want to mention names, but we all know who that was, right? And uh, here's to, to, go ahead. Oh, I was to challenge you guys a little bit on this, and I, I find this discussion uh, interesting. Um, because you need to strike a balance between uh, the business, uh, the business goals and objectives. Uh, so you have uh, usability at odds with security. And so Tor, you mentioned, you know, getting security to a level that, that you know, the best that you can get. How, you know, the, the best way to secure something is to not allow any, any users to access that yeah. system at all, right? But now usability go, falls on the floor pretty quick. So how, how do you know when you've found the right balance between securing it as best as possible while still providing maximum uh, uh, user accessibility uh, and effectiveness for, for your employees? Like, how, how do you know when you've reached that balance? The balance, uh, it, it, it actually, it differs depending on the organization. Um, and, and, and it also differs uh, based on the asset we're trying to protect. It, it differs uh, based on the, the type of information we're trying to protect. If the information can be used, say 10 years forward, then we should be really careful not to give that information away. But if uh, the information is, I could say, not valid, obsolete, the second you have provided it to your counterpart, then you don't really have to, you, you could see it with, 
with the um, one of the things we were using one time password right mm -hmm. um it, it's not information per se but it's data right so the one-time password is actually obsolete once it's used. You can you can use it one time, so you don't have to protect it once you have used it. Make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 uh, to your question, where where do you see the, where the balance is? Um, it it it's kind of hard to tell, just by saying okay, we have this formula, and you you can say the balance is there. Um, you have to take into account the factors I mentioned here. And so to I, your argument on. with usability, I actually don't think that a secure system is a system that is difficult for the user to use. So because I, if it's difficult... A, oh, sorry. A point here? So saying, going back to what you said, Tom, I want to give an example. So people listening to our podcast can go and think about this. But um, let's say the United Nations pass a resolution to go and invade a country because they violated some rules. Say, for example, like the, uh, the wars we had in the, at the end of the last century, right? Uh, the United Nations passed resolutions that if, if countries didn't retreat from certain areas, then action would take place. Well, let's say that the government's going to invade country A at 8 a.m. on August the 1st. That only has to be kept secret till 8 a.m. on August the 1st because they're going to notice that they've been attacked, right? So, I would guess so, yeah. Yeah, right. But then what if the government is creating a new superfighter? Let's call it the superjet, okay? The designs of the superjet are being worked on now, for example. That won't come to fruition for maybe 10 years. And I love the comment you made, Todd. You know, it, can it be used in 10 years' time? Well, what if we use state-of-the-art encryption on the Superjet plans today? What you all have to remember is that 40 years ago, the Nazis used state-of-the-art encryption called Enigma, and it was broken by a computer. And I always tell this story in my security classes. It was broken by a computer. Okay, and what you have to remember is, if you go down your grocery store and buy a birthday card, that birthday card has more raw CPU power than the computer that broke Enigma. What was it? What was it? We 43, 22, 60 years ago? 80 years ago. 80 years ago. I've got my calculator here, so I can't yeah, do the <laughs> when, when it comes to stage where you have to Google the answer of like, 2020 minus 1943. It's like, maybe we need to think more, yeah. But the, the point is, in 10 years, I'm already, th let me take a side, I'm already thinking of buying, just because I can, the new 32-core AMD CPU. Just because I want to have a 30, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't think games support it. I don't think Windows support it. I don't even think Linux supports it yet. But there's a 32-core Threadripper, it's called. It's like $1,000, right? I'm a geek. I, I, I don't play golf. I buy large CPUs, yeah. large core CPUs. That's, um, that's what I do. Um, I love technology. But if you can imagine a 32 core Threadripper, what are we going to have in 10 years, guys? And the power yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, that's the reason why, why uh, I, I often hear that, oh, we use AES encryption. Yeah. 
And that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it might be, or it might have been <laughs> fantastic. Um, and that's the reason why we, we, we have to realize that uh, cryptography is evolving all the time. Yes. Um, we nowadays are talking about next-gen encryption, Sweet B encryption. Um, we have some nice good RCs explaining what's, all, what's it all about. And, and yes, um, in 10 years, if you, we use the state-of-the-art encryption algorithm today, in 10 years, that would most likely be obsolete. Absolutely. So, Rafael, on, on the industrial side of things, there's the, the concept of the CIA triad, yeah. uh, which is kind of uh, the, you know, the three pillars of, of security. You got the, the C stands for confidentiality, I for integrity, A for availability, but it's often referred to as CIA. Well, in the, in the industrial space, uh, they often uh, joke around, refer to it as AIC. Uh, and what they're, they're trying to do is they're, they're emphasizing that availability and integrity is much more important. Uh, than, yeah. than confidentiality in their yeah. networks. For, for yeah. example, if you're trying to send a command to open or close a valve, uh, you want that command to get there. Uh, you, you want to send the command to open that valve. Uh, you want to make sure it's, it's uh, arrives, so you need availability. And when you send the command open, you want to make sure that when the valve actually receives that command, uh, that it receives the message of open uh, that was actually sent, that it's not you know, uh, changed or manipulated in, in, in transit or in, in route. So you want to make sure that's integrity uh, is there now the fact that if anyone sees you sending the open command, that's the the least of the three important uh, steps there. That if, if someone sees it, that open command being sent, that's fine as long as it gets there and the right command yeah. is sent. Now, in in reality, when you reflect on that, you know all all three pillars are quite important. But in in the industrial space, they're trying to emphasize uh, that the other availability integrity are are slightly more important than uh, confidentiality. Well, that's that's, that's really kind of also because yeah. we. We need uh, in in the industrial uh, realm. We, we need to to have things operational. We have to to work because we're making money about by, by mm -hmm. having this, uh, IoT systems uh, or the systems in general. So yes, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, it's it's we have to focus on that uh, that that systems are working. And, and I'll go back to what you said with the. Uh, the, the, the usability for the users. Um, uh, what I thought was trying to say was that you, you shouldn't build systems that are that complex so users try to circumvent them. Because yeah. we know what human beings do, they try to make it easy for themselves. Yeah. And they should. Yeah. That's fine. So sometimes you have to to take into uh, account the human factor also and make it make the security so an ordinary user can operate securely without being disturbed in the primary uh, focus on, on that person's job or tasks. I agree with you there. So, so we can introduce some, some theory here then. So when you, when you talk about security, Two of the things that we talk about first is the concept of risk. Okay. What is the possibility that somebody in nasty, nasty country who's our enemy will try and attack us? And an example that I always use is we don't protect against hurricanes in California. 
and we don't protect against earthquakes in Florida's. In Florida, sorry, didn't know we had two of them. In Florida. Now we have. The reason is, is because we get hurricanes in Florida and we get earthquakes in California. So you have to look at, at the risk of something happening and the likelihood of something happening. And then look at what the damage is going to be because nobody wants to spend a million dollars to secure a system if the system is violated and the company loses half a million dollars. That's just stupid. Okay, so assessment and risk and analysis is very important. And the problem I think we're talking about, guys, is when you sell into Farmer Giles or Farmer McDonald, old McDonald, you hit the nail on the head, Tor, you said, he or she expects to buy it and for it to work. So you have ease of use, availability, and secure. And isn't it the old story where you can pick any two? You can't have all three. It's not achievable. And then, of course, you've got a fourth one, which is cost. No one's going to put $50 devices in their field to measure the water content if it's going to save them $45 a year and so on and so forth. So, so balance, is that the right word? It is. It is. It's an old story I heard a long time ago when I was doing like CEH and security and it's, it's, it's about DES. You remember DES and triple DES? There was a challenge put out for anyone to break the, uh, was it DES or triple DES? I forget. I think it was triple DES. The challenge to break the triple DES algorithm. So what a couple of students at the university did, they, they took, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a screensaver you used to get, and I think it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. It was a screensaver you could install on Windows, and it was the SETI screensaver. And what SETI it would project, be, yeah. SETI project, it would download a little bit of code from SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and it would process it. And so your screensaver, when you went home at night, you'd have your computer on, your screensaver would actually do something to help science. Well, a couple of university students took that project and they rewrote the code so it would take the, I forget, apologies if it was DES or triple DES, I forget which one it was. They took the DES encryption and they just brute forced it. And they did it across, they installed this program on all the PCs across the university, several thousand PCs. And three months into an expected six, seven, eight month project, it came up and said, oh, here's the key. Just go and add it with a brute force attack. Mm-hmm. And that's why we use AES today, right? Because the governments knew that DES and triple DES uh, will come into an end of their usefulness. It's still difficult to break. What you've got to understand is it is nasty country can quite easily buy 10,000 PCs, set them up, write a piece of code like this, and all of a sudden they've got a supercomputer that's more powerful and doesn't have to be super cooled like a legitimate supercomputer has to be. It's the concept of, um, what's the word? Computing, spreading computing over multiple nodes. Distributed computing. Didn't somebody build a, I think I mentioned this before, didn't somebody build a supercomputer out of PlayStation 3s? Oh yeah, they did. And Raspberry Pis, little devices that are low powered, when you put lots of them together, become high powered. The PlayStation distributed computing was actually used to kind of create a proof of concept on 
MD5 hashing's uh, shortcomings. Yes, yeah. No. Well, of course, the, the PlayStation, what it's got is some really, really, really good graphics functionality, right? And I don't know how much our viewers or listeners know about graphics functionality, but it's basically really good at maths. What else do we need if it's really good at maths? What else can we do if it's really good at maths? Oh, cryptography. That yeah. needs chips that are really good at maths. <laughs> Dagnabbit. Yes. That's awesome, guys. Hey, we're coming up to the, um, to the 35, 40-minute mark. As, uh, Troy, you any last comments over IoT security? Uh, no, uh, just, well, uh, one, one comment just about uh, an article that was published by uh, Omdia uh, on, for the IoT World uh, Conference, and they did a survey about uh, you know, trends in the IoT space, and the, the number one uh, response or the number one challenge that they discovered for deploying IoT networks was uh, security. Um, that was the number one concern in, in, uh, for, for IoT deployments, so to making sure that it robust and could be secured uh, easily and effectively. Yep, yep, yep. Actually, you sent me an article, to, um, no, Troy, Troy, you, you sent me an article, Troy, I believe. Isn't um, Australia and Europe working on potential IoT security foundations? It's, um, right, writing? Yeah, there's, there's a group in Australia that's working on yeah. that. It looks like it'll be called the, the Trustmark uh, certification. Yeah. Uh, but looking for a standards-based way to uh, test IoT devices to meet uh, minimum security requirements, uh, focusing mostly on the, the consumer consumer space. Uh, but you can submit your product or your new design, your new invention, you know, product that you want to market, submit to them. Uh, they, they say that they'll turn it around within at least 30 days, uh, provide you with the results. But uh, typically, it'll be, you know, seven, seven to 15 days, but no longer than 30 days. Uh, but they'll come back to you with, uh, with a report explaining, you know, where it could be vulnerable, where it could be exploited, uh, that kind of thing. But they're definitely trying to up the game um, globally uh, across the IoT space to make things uh, more resilient, uh, harder to, to hack and crack and get into those uh, devices. So it's definitely taking things in the, the right, uh, right direction. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and that's a great note to finish on. I think we're, um, we're over our time. Uh, I would like to tell everybody who's listening to the podcast, if they get a chance to come over to our YouTube channel, uh, The Channel 42. I'm Troy Martin. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Troy Mart, uh, the handle Troy Mart. And uh, our co-host, uh, Phil Morgan, how can uh, people reach out and get a hold of you? You can find me on Twitter at, at CCIE5224. It's me. All right. And cool. Thanks, Phil. And Tor Olson, how can uh, people get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me at Twitter um, at the handle at 2RN one so it's two romeo november and the number one awesome awesome all right thanks, thanks guys. guys thanks guys see you next time see you, see you guys